Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. This is News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, with the kids going back to school this week, many kids will have tripped through the gate, happy to get back to the routine of it all, and plenty of parents will be cheering that on too. But there are some who, since the pandemic, have been showing signs of anxiety. I know it's cropped up in my house when it hadn't before. And even if it's something your family have experience of for years, or you want to get advice for the future, I'll be joined by child psychologist Jennifer Ryan to get advice on how to navigate through it all, starting with the correct language and the tools to use. I'll also be meeting Owen McMahon, who's part of a social enterprise team hoping to ensure mental health issues are diagnosed quicker and people can get the specific care they need. It's at research stage and it was inspired by Owen's own experience of psychosis and he'll join me in studio to tell his story. And if the recent IPCC report on climate change, described as a code red for humanity, made you shudder and the endless plastic in your life makes you despair, I'll be joined by Lindsay O'Connell of Sick of Plastic Ireland to find out how we can bring about change. And I have an incredible competition for you from Breast Cancer Ireland for their launch of the Great Pink Run. And I have a Fitbit Versa 3 up for grabs. More details a little bit later. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was good for whatever reason. I seem to have my mojo back a little this week and I'm feeling more and more like myself as the weeks roll on. I think we all need to give ourselves time to recalibrate to life as it is now, but I way prefer the news now of restrictions being lifted. I have a close family member finally making the trip across the world to meet her first grandchild for the first time and the child is 10 months old. And my mum's sister got to travel over from England and stay with her for the first time in two years. Things are happening and I like it. The chinks of light are taking over and I think it's important to recognise it as much as I did during the darker times. And I took part in a couple of events which some might think are left of field uh, recently. One was a gathering under the full moon on a beach. Now, all I knew was that a friend of a friend had been to a few and loved it that there was going to be a sea dip and that there may be some chanting. Now, obviously, I went along with a certain trepidation for the chanting. I'm not keen on it. I get self-conscious. But at this stage in my life, I find I park most of those type of feelings. I question them. And if it's just down to a bit of silly embarrassment like this was, I truck on and know I'll figure it out when I get there. And I was surprised to arrive to the sand dunes to see a large gathering of people there all safe within restrictions, but it was fascinating to see so many people come together. There does seem to be a need in people these days to connect like this. There was Wim Hof breathing, there was a dip in the sea, the moon played an absolute blinder too, unhindered by any cloud. And there was a real sense of camaraderie among the group and I loved it. And there was no chanting as it happened. The other was a much smaller group at sunrise into the forest for a guided meditation and then down to the sea again. Yes, I see my pattern here too. And again, not only did I get something out of making time for myself to disconnect from everyday life, but it was all about that sense of coming together. And it's always something that fascinates me as we move into a world, certainly here in Ireland, where religion doesn't hold the power it once did. Is there still an innate need in humankind to come together and have some sort of ceremony, even if that is just 
lighting a candle in the middle and sitting in the woods or getting into the sea. And I listened to a brilliant podcast this week with Elizabeth Day. She was interviewing Darren Brown and he was talking about finding meaning in life and how it's so important to our spirit. And he's an atheist and he was saying you don't have to be spiritual. You can throw yourself into being a parent and and let that be your meaning. But as someone who often throws shade on psychics and mediums, because he often uses their techniques himself in his stage shows, he also touched on something which I think is so important. In wellness lately, there's such a focus on manifesting that if you sit silently for long enough meditating with your sage, that you're going to be given directions and answers. And if you put enough positive energy into all that, all your wishes will be granted. And while I do put a lot into the power of positive thinking and the value of taking time to sit with yourself, I've just described baying at the moon and and sitting in the woods. What does it mean then for people when things don't go your way? It's a question I've I've asked lately. I think it leaves people with a certain amount of self-blame, which is surely counterproductive and not helpful to anyone. Are we saying people who are trapped in Afghanistan manifested this or didn't think positively enough? I realise I'm going deep with that one, but the desired effect is that we learn we all need to just give ourselves a bit of a break. There is so much that is not within our control and the best we can do sometimes is just go with it. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. And I have a fantastic competition for you today. The Great Pink Run with Glanbia, supported by Joe Duffy Group, is a fun, family and inclusive event. Everyone aged from 1 to 100 is welcome to participate. Irish people from all around the globe can participate to help turn the globe pink in aid of Breast Cancer Ireland. All the proceeds from the event will help to fund life-saving research and the provision of good breast health education and awareness programmes nationwide by Breast Cancer Ireland. Registrations for the event open at greatpinkrun.ie on the 6th of September. You can track your activity during the weekend of the event, the 16th and 17th of October, on your smartphone and upload your KMs. You can also share your photos across social media using the hashtag greatpinkrun. So to celebrate all of this, we have a Fitbit Versa 3 for you to win. So to answer, just answer this question. Which famous band announced new music this week after a gap of 40 years? Was it A, ABBA or B, Books Fizz? Text the word RUN, your answer and name to us now on 53106. That is 53106 and text will cost you 30 cent. Now, the Sick of Plastic campaign formed in 2018 when Friends of the Earth and Voice Ireland noticed a surge in the public's frustration with single-use plastic. Despite us introducing the plastic bag tax here back in 2002, we're taking more plastic packaging home in our reusable shopping bags than ever before. Lindsay O'Connell is from Sick of Plastic and she joins me on the line now. Hello, Lindsay. How are you? Hello, Claire. How are you doing? I'm good. So is that true? Are we bringing home more plastic or are we just more conscious of it? Do you know, it's a bit of both. Um, I mean, plastic is a big issue at the moment. It wouldn't come as a surprise to yourself, I'm sure, and most of your listeners, um, that it is a bit of a, a pollution issue. But we are taking home a lot more plastic um, in our bags than ever as well. Um, I know myself, I'm in my 40s and I used to go shopping with my parents every week. And I remember going up to the shops and all the fruit and vegetables was loose. Um, and you rarely had the overuse of all the single use kind of um, poor quality plastic that we see in our fruit and vegetables today. And 
the more time has gone on and um, the more plastic we're, we're using. And that's not um, happening by accident. It's a concerted effort by the plastics industry and um, because that's where their profit is, unfortunately. So they're producing more plastic and then we're seeing it on our shelves and then we're taking it home and putting it into our bins. And what do you mean that's where their profit is? Is it not in the product within the plastic? Oh, so that's a good question. Um, a lot of people, well, I didn't realize this when I started working on this project, on this campaign about four years ago, that 99% of the ingredients in plastic is actually oil and gas. So the fossil fuel industry, because we're all heating our homes now more efficiently or we're powering our cars with electricity instead of uh, oil, the, the fossil fuel industry are moving towards the creation of plastic as a way of bolstering their kind of ebbing profits, basically. So because we're seeing more plastic in the shops, this is actually a business um, drive for more profits. Uh, the more plastic they're producing, the better they're, they're doing as a business, basically. God, that's so interesting because with the recent IPCC report into climate change, giving us the, the code red for humanity, there's such a focus on emissions that yes, we see plastic as something we don't necessarily want to have because of a, a litter issue or a landfill issue. But I don't think people make that connection with emissions. So true. And I mean, if we if we want to take carbon reduction seriously, then we have to take uh, plastic pollution seriously because the whole life cycle of plastic is so carbon intensive from the extraction of oil and gas from the ground to the production of, of the plastic with the chemical petrochemical industry. And then when we kind of take it home and put it into our bins, it goes to landfill incineration or it's shipped overseas. And as we know, plastic doesn't really break down. So all of the plastic that's ever been produced is still in the environment somewhere today. And that's a really stark. I know there's a lot of statistics out there that I can throw at you and things like that. But if you think of all the plastic toothbrushes you've ever used, all of the plastic packaging you've ever taken off a product and put into your bin, it's still out there somewhere. If, if not being turned into another plastic to be broken down eventually and to go to landfill to be incinerated or it's a microplastic, which is in our ocean. Yeah, because I think we all got on board with this recycling thing, particularly here in Ireland and on our bin companies are really behind it. We've our black, our green, our, our brown bin and we're all there cleaning out our, our milk cartons and our plastic and thinking we're amazing popping it into the bin. But nothing is really happening to the level that we were sold, I think. It was a complete misnomer. It's a myth. Um, recycling is part of the solution, but it's really, really far down on the waste hierarchy. So what we would say at the very top is, you know, refuse, reuse and refill. And then recycling would be way down there. We only in Ireland um, recycle 31% of our plastics. And at that, you can only recycle a piece of plastic like five or six times before it becomes completely broken down, useless, and it has to be incinerated anyway. So it's not like aluminium and glass that can be recycled and reused constantly. So the Irish, um, you know, we have very stark statistics in, in terms of how much we're producing as well. So we produce 22% more plastic um, than the, you know, our average EU counterpart, which is very high. Um, and as we get more wealthy and as we spend more money, we bring more things home and we produce more plastic, unfortunately. So it's a vicious cycle and it's completely linear. At the moment, we're taking this raw material, we're producing it, we're throwing it out and it's not going anywhere and it's not being reused. So recycling definitely isn't the answer and it's not the answer we've been led to believe. Yeah, you're right there. 
You're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna and I'm talking to Lindsay O'Connell of Sick of Plastic Ireland on how we can affect some change. I'm always really conscious when I have a discussion like this that I don't want to guilt people into no action at all. And there is a real risk with any topic like this that we kind of trip ourselves up so much by thinking we're not doing enough that we end up not doing anything at all. So what is the work that you do at Sick of Plastic Ireland? What what change are you hoping to bring about? Oh, yeah, um, I feel like that too. I And I'm sure you can empathise with me here when I say this, Claire. This, I'm not the only one who stands over my bin in a state of paralysis with a piece of packaging in my hand, being like, where does this go? I want it to go to the right place. I want to be part of the solution, you know? Um, so that's exactly what our campaign does. We work up with bottom up solutions where we give people who who feel like us and who are sick of plastic. If they want to push back against industry, we will provide them with ways to get in contact with their local supermarket, maybe do a local audit of their shops to see how much plastic they're using, form communication with their managers to say, you know, what are you doing to reduce it? What can I do as a consumer to, to, to kind of pressure you to do that? But then we're also looking for top down solutions as well. We don't think that we're going to make big changes unless industry and government are on board. So while there is some personal responsibility for us all to effectively manage our waste, what we're doing is we're calling on government to introduce refill targets so that, you know, 20% of our supermarket floors of the larger supermarkets have to be refill where we can bring in our own packaging and fill up those um, products instead of then removing that kind of plastic unnecessary poor quality um, packaging that we're seeing everywhere. Um, and we're also asking on industry to be a little bit more transparent about how much plastic they're producing, because until we know those numbers specifically, we're not able to actually deal with this issue properly. What kind of uptake have you had from food producers, from supermarkets? Are people interesting or interested in working with you and, and finding out how they can do better? So three years ago, we were set up um, and it was Friends of the Earth and Voice Ireland that came together and decided to do something. And within those three years, our campaign has grown tremendously. We went from kind of knocking on doors and holding banners outside supermarket shops and being completely ignored, to be honest, to actually sitting down with the top supermarkets. Ireland. So we sit down with Little, Aldi, Tesco's, Duns and Musgraves and we go through their sustainability report. And we make sure that they're keeping up with the targets that they're supposed to be hitting, but not using them as a pretense for strategy, because relying on the EU targets isn't um, a way of having a proper, you know, plastic reduction ambition within a company. We need more than that. So um, where once we were being ignored, now we're actually sitting down at the table with these companies because they see that it's important. They see that there's refill targets coming down the line from the EU. Um, Ireland has to recycle 50% of our plastic by 2025. And at the moment, we're only recycling 31%. So we need to do a lot more and do better. So there's pressure coming from all different angles. We just need to make sure it's more concerted and that everybody's working hard to achieve the same goals. And I do think there's hope, as as you said, you, you've seen it over the, the three years, even that really scary, terrifying report said there is still time. There were glimmers of hope. And I had someone knock on the door the other day to see, did I want to order milk to the door? And I said to the guy, are milk bottles coming back? And he said no, but they are phasing out those plastic containers and going back to the recyclable Tetra pack or similar and just something like that is just a monumental shift that people are actually 
not being paralysed by fear, but are making the necessary changes that we need. And all these incremental changes add up to make a difference, don't they? Oh, 100%. And the thing about the plastic problem, like it, it is one of the biggest environmental challenges of this generation, but it's also something very tangible that we can see and we can do something about. So we can use our consumer power. We can choose the products that have less plastic. And I think by educating yourself or even by listening to this conversation and identifying with it, you're putting on a plastic lens and you're able to then walk into a shop and supermarket and appreciate the fact that, well, maybe that could have gone to the effort of having better recyclable material, maybe less packaging. Maybe there's a refill store next to me, near me that I can find instead. And where once we wouldn't be able to find a refill store next to us, they're popping up all over the country. And um, I, I think there's a definitely a tipping point coming, Claire. Um, and, but we're just we're at the point now where we just need to push back as hard as we can. Well, if people want to find out more, I know you have a, a website on Voice Ireland and also on Friends of the Earth. People can just Google Sick of Plastic Ireland. I know you have a, an exhibition coming up in Belfast and in Dublin. But keep pushing, Lindsay. And uh, yeah, I hope people will listen and, and get on board and help you too. Lindsay you O'Connell so from Sick of Plastic Ireland. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Claire. Lovely to speak to you. Coming up after the break, child psychologist Jennifer Ryan on why we shouldn't necessarily use the term anxiety around kids. Alive and kicking on News Talk. So, with the kids going back to school this week, many will have tripped through the gate, happy as Larry to get back to the routine of it all. Plenty of parents will feel that way too. But there are some who, since the pandemic, may have been showing signs of anxiety. I know it's cropped up in my house where it hadn't before. And even if it's something your family have experience of for years or you want advice for if it does in the future, I'm joined by child psychologist Jennifer Ryan. Hello, Jennifer. How are you? Good morning, Claire. Very good. Thank you. So do you think kids are more anxious or stressed post-pandemic? Is there going to be an overhang from the experience we've all been through, all the change? There's certainly more uncertainty. And I think this is where the language piece comes in around anxiety. I'm dealing with a huge amount of people who kind of land in my office and say, I have anxiety or my child has anxiety. And I think... The, the pandemic has brought uncertainty for everybody. We're not quite sure what's happening next. It's a constant conversation. We don't know what's going to, what's the next announcement going to be? When are we going to do this? When are we going to, so there's an awful lot of when and if. And I think that's been translated back down to our kids. I didn't see an impact the first time round. I have massively seen an impact since the second lockdown. So really kind of since January on, I've seen a big impact in this. But we have to be careful of our language. Anxiety is a very particular thing, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. Just when you sort of said people are arriving in sort of saying, I have anxiety. Is that, I mean, look, going and getting help with a psychologist, 100%, I'm I'm obviously behind that and and, and talking about how we're feeling and and working out the best way through it. But is it like rocking up to a dietician and saying, I have hunger? Well, I'm kind of, I shouldn't laugh, but I do. So I've, I've had people kind of come in and they say, I have anxiety. And I look at the young person, I say, so tell me what you're worried about. And they look at me and they go, I'm not really worried about anything. Now, if we break down the word anxiety, the word anxiety is based around that sense of worry that something's going to go wrong. We all have these feelings. They are perfectly normal feelings. But a state of anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder is a different thing altogether. It's a, it's a more often than not feeling 
of things going wrong. It's excessive worry. Now, a worry about going into school and whether people will like me is a normal worry. A worry going into school that you're not going to be able to get your homework done and the teacher might get cross is not, they're not abnormal things to worry. They're not unusual things a child should worry about. So I think we have to be careful in treating it as something that we've all been through, that we will all, that all children will go through and how we manage that instead of immediately saying they have anxiety. Let's get this. You know, I also often get they have anxiety, but it's okay because I've had it all my life too. Or it runs in our family. So there you have a child now going through their young years with this sense of, well, I just have something wrong with me. So we really have to be careful of this word anxiety. We need to break it down into what are you worried about? And what if they can't articulate that? What if it's just a general feeling? They talk a lot, kids. I know mine certainly do about a, a feeling in their their tummy. In their tummy, yeah. It's this feeling in your tummy. I've had parents who've kind of landed with me after kind of GPs, after blood tests, after everything, trying to figure out this feeling in their tummy. And a lot of the time, that general kind of sense of kind of worry is often coming from society talking. It's often coming from that sense of, oh, I think mum and dad are worried about something. Oh, there's a sense of, they don't know what it is. So you're right, there is that sense of, so that's where as, as parents, as society, we have to be careful about our use of language around anxiety. But for the most part, we can sit down with our kids and we can go, I, I do an exercise with young people like, like you might see in the back of a manual. And I say, well, well let's troubleshoot it. Let's write down all the things that you're worried about that could go wrong today. And we troubleshoot it and then we come up with a solution for it. Okay, well, if that happens, what, what's gonna, you know, what does that look like? Okay, but is that okay because you can do X, Y, or Z? And they go, oh yeah, okay, I never thought of it like that. So we remove that sense of kind of foreboding almost. We remove that sense that this is awful, this is something we can't fix, and we move it into a space of, yeah, actually, do you know what? This is okay. I felt like this once before and I did this. Yeah, it does really take the power out of the word when you replace the word anxiety with worry, isn't it? I, I think it's huge. And the difference, you see the difference when you're working with people as well when you remove that word. And it, it's a worry that we can do something about. So let's talk through some of them then that would be kind of common among kids. What if your kid is anxious about school, has separation anxiety, you're having lots of tears at the school gate, the clinging to the leg kind of thing? One of the key things that often works, and it doesn't work for everybody, and I'm very mindful when I talk like this, that I can, I can generalise and each person's story is very different. A lot of the time the anxiety could be coming from the parent at the school gate and they have the fear of letting go. They have the fear of what happens if they don't make friends. And that can often come from the parents. You know, the parents' memories of going into school and what it was like for them. So it, it's important, firstly, to look at the, the bigger picture of it, I suppose. One of the big things I'm seeing with young people is the social anxiety. And I, I, I will term it as that in this, in, in this context. It's the fear of talking to people. And that is one thing that COVID has really caused I suppose for want of a better word is we don't know how people are going to be I've got I've got young people who they rehearse full conversations in their heads 
well, if I say this, they might say that. And what if they say this back? Okay, well, then I won't say what I was going to say in the first place. So they rehear- this is exhausting. So one of the key things I do, again, we go through the troubleshooting little guide with them for the night before school. Okay, what worries you about tomorrow? And again, what worries you? Not what, what has you anxious. What worries you? And then troubleshoot. I love to do little storyboards. Most kids love to draw. So let, let's draw it out. So what, what does it look like? Another useful thing to talk about with, it, with your kids is this concept of facts and feelings. Okay, so the feeling is worry. What are the facts that you have to back that up? When has anybody not talked to you? When has any teacher got cross with you? You know, so it's to, it's to but a lot of the time kids don't have facts to back up the feelings. You know, the, exa- the example I use is if somebody comes to see me in my office and I'm in floods of tears, I say, I can't work today because I've spilt, spilt my coffee. They might look at me, oh, I know coffee is important, but that's a bit extreme. The facts don't match the feelings. So we can do a lot of work with kids around this, this sense of, okay, well, actually, this, this has never happened before. And if it does happen, what are you going to do about it? So it's actually bringing them to that place of, of solution-based. And really thinking it through. Well, you're listening to Alive and Kicking here on News Talk with Claire McKenna, and I'm talking to child psychologist Jennifer Ryan about anxiety or worry in kids. And Jennifer, is it important that we validate their feelings? I can be guilty of kind of brushing off a lot of of things. You know, when kids fall, for example, you know, and we get into that thing with the toddler where you kind of, you laugh and hope that we can just get over this one, that that becomes quite a good coping mechanism as a parent. The more you brush things off, the less of a deal it becomes. But in these situations, is it important to hear them out and spend a bit of time on it? Yeah, but actually you've given a brilliant example there, Claire, because our children look to us for guidance. Our children look to us to see how they should feel in a situation. So if a child is feeling fearful and they look at their parents and their parents are feeling fearful, that is validated in that moment. I am right to be fearful. So they do look to us. So if, again, go back to the school gates, if the child is fearful and you're going, but it'll be grand because I hear you. So yes, validate, but validate and normalize. Yes, I hear you. I remember feeling like that when I was in school too, but you know what I did. So yes, you validate, you acknowledge they feel like that, but then you normalize. Most parents seem to be fighting against screen time. Does that add to anxiety levels if, if, if a kid is, is working their way through fortnight 24-7? Or does that come down to that downtime? Do we need to just relax a little bit and let them go to school and then let them come home and, and chill out a bit? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's all about balance. And it's funny, I would have been kind of anti all the computer games up until COVID, actually. And myself, I watched my own kids. And I watched how they, how they interacted online. I watched how they actually built friendships through some of these games. So again, it's back to that balance. It's about, and again, screen time gets this general bad press, whereas actually some screen time can be really beneficial for our kids. It's about, it, it's, oh, I'm going to use that word, it's all about the balance. It's all about getting it right. If they're out doing their sport for kind of half of the afternoon and then they want to come in and chill out before their homework or after their homework and play their computer game, that, that's okay. And to look at what they're, what they're building through that. Are they developing friends? Now, there is the side of that as well, of course, where screen time can become... I'm going Now, I see this a lot where screen time actually can, can build aggression, can build frustration, can 
can build a shutdown or a detachment from real relationships. So it's about monitoring that side of it as well. But that's that's very individual and, 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 and more unusual, I would say. Well, look, it sounds like we've only scratched the surface on all of this, but some great advice there. We'll have to have you back soon. You can find out more about Jennifer at supermi.ie. Child psychologist Jennifer Ryan, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Claire. Coming up after the break, Owen McMahon, founder of HeadEd, on why his experience of psychosis led him to want to help people receive mental health diagnosis quicker. Alive and kicking with Claire McKenna. This is News Talk. Owen McMahon is a physics student at Trinity College and founder of HeadEd, where he recently received approval for a project from a number of government ministers and will be working with UCD to create a programme for secondary school students and to create specialised mental health doctors. It's based on his own experience with diagnosis and he joins me in studio now. Hello, Owen. How are you? Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for coming in. So take me back a little bit to receiving a mental health diagnosis yourself. Sure you were 18, 19 at the time. So what was Owen like then? Well, basically, it all started when I was in first year college. I had a brilliant, brilliant first year. So much fun. But then for some reason, over the next couple of years, my level of happiness was decreasing and decreasing. And I just wasn't able to know why. Like, there, there, there was no reason for it. And then when I was in third year college, third year of doing genetics in Trinity, just strange things started to happen. Like, I remember on the night of the Trump election in 2016, it felt as if my connection with the outside world had been severed. And then I kept on going down and down for the next couple of months, uh, becoming more reclusive. And still strange, th- I, 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 I wasn't able to put on, on a label on why, why I, was, I was feeling like I was. Like, it was just never on my radar that I could be mentally ill. So there would have been nothing like this through your childhood, through your teenage Absolutely years? Absolutely not. Nothing. No, nothing at all. Nothing in the family. And you weren't feeling overwhelmed, stressed with the workload? You know, I, I didn't enjoy genetics that much, but it was all right. Um, and the way I, the way I, I was feeling, it, it was disproportionate to, to what it, I, I was going or how, how, how much I liked or, or didn't like the course. But I remember I, I started to become more reclusive in that third year. And I remember watching TV one day. And I felt as if the TV had ripped my soul out of my body. Like, it was absolutely awful. Kept on going down. Another day, it felt as if my connection with God had been severed. I was absolutely brutal. But still, I wasn't able to put on a label on why, why, why I was feeling how I was. And so at the end of that year, I eventually got depression. And it was the first time that I could, I could put a label on what, on what was going on. But even then, uh, my family and I, we had no idea what to do. I went to a psychotherapist for a month who had no idea what to do. I went to doctors who had no idea what to do. At this point, you know, I was barely able to form a sentence. It was it was a really, really tough situation. And we were just out of luck, able to find a doctor who had a particular interest in mental health and knew to send me into a psychiatric hospital, which I thought was just the end of the world. Like, I thought, I, you know, going in there, there'd be chains and cuffs on, on the bed. And, you know, it, it was effectively an insane asylum and I was going out to pasture. And that's just not 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 at all what what it was actually like. Uh, I went in, and I was diagnosed with uh, psychosis, uh, particularly a form of psychosis called thought disorder, which basically means that uh, my brain was was firing too fast. I was having a lot of scattered thoughts, and I was put on medication to the point I'm I'm fully better today. But now now it took it took six months of being in there to to get better. But I did eventually get better. 
and so I, I, I effectively started this, this pro or this, this project now, Head Ed, to kind of help people who, who might, might have been in my situation, to educate them how to recognize the warning signs of mental illness, and then what to do about it when the signs present themselves. So to try and help people avoid that grey area you found yourself in for some exactly, time. Yeah. Because what I think is interesting about what you're saying, that even though you couldn't label these feelings, of course you couldn't, you needed a mental health professional to help you do that. You were articulating them, you were seeking help. Who did you speak to first about how you were feeling? Well, first I would have spoken to my mum and one of my aunts because I, I was at the stage where it was clear to other people that something was wrong. Um, like all, 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 all my friends would, would notice it. Um, so I talked to them initially and we tried to, to talk through it. But I think one of the things I'm trying to get across is that, you know, people typically hear advice like open up and talk. Uh, you know, if they have depression or if they have a mental health problem. And often that's just not enough. Uh, when there's something underneath that's something like biologically wrong with you and you need biological treatment, you need to get, it's not just about getting help, but getting the proper help. And so after talking to them, uh, my aunt knew a psychotherapist who I went to for, for a month. Uh, and that was that was all right, but I, I was clearly going down and down. Uh, but it, it, it was really when, when I got into hospital that I, that I could I could probably talk to someone who knew what 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 was actually going on and how to and how to help me. And what was life like then? Had you paused college for a little while? Had you gone back home? Well, I remember I somehow passed the end of third year exams. Uh, I had three weeks before the exams and I wasn't able to study at all. And it was just the, the morning of each exam. I was able to study a few hours and I managed to pass which is probably more of a, f- a reflection of how easy the exams were versus how, how how good my studying habits were. I don't know so much about that. That's <laughs> fairly impressive. But I, I think what you said there about talking is interesting because I think we do talk more about not being afraid to say you're not okay and that that's a really good thing. But we focus so much on depression and anxiety and that's great. But we don't tend to talk about going to a mental hospital for some time. We don't talk about psychosis and when you think of psychosis it seems to have the stereotype of being in a in a thriller or even worse well, a, the, the, a horror movie yeah, and like it's the, not it's an ordinary guy who's at college there, there's a there's a confusion probably with the psychopath and it's not it's not the same thing at all typically psychosis is just a break from reality like you're not you're not responding properly to the situation or even you you have a, an abnormal response um but really i mean as as, as soon as i got on the, the drugs i mean I got better. Uh, I was put on antipsychotic medication, and basically, what 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 the cause of psychosis, I think, is that there's too much dopamine firing in your brain, and what the antipsychotic med- medication does is it reduces that level of dopamine. Um, so that so that wor- wor- worked one hundred percent for me. And what is it like to receive a diagnosis like that? To have an answer, to have a, a treatment plan that it's not you it's yeah, just yeah. a condition that it, you have that you can get over yeah it was it was brilliant to know that it was an an illness versus something i had done or failed to do because i think most people who have a mental health problem think you know that it that it was something they did or they failed to do when actually the the cause is often just biological and often it's 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 kind of feedback uh, cycle so if if there's something bi- biologically wrong, you might you know you might life deteriorate, and because your life deteriorates, you feel worse. But the cure for me was getting on medication and being hospitalized. 
You're listening to Alive and Kicking here on News Talk, and I'm talking to Owen McMahon about his experience of psychosis. What was the experience in the mental hospital like? Because, like you said, we have this image that it's going to be padded walls and girl-interrupted type movie scenes where you're locked in a room on your own. What was it like in reality? Well, I was on two main wards. The first ward I was on was a locked ward, and that was for the the people who were most ill. Um, and that was that was quite tough um, being in there. But I had my family coming in every day, which kind of helped. But like, there, there were people in there who had it worse than me by far. Like, there were some stories like you you just wouldn't believe. Like, there's a man in there who was raped repeatedly by his father and brothers uh, when he was a child. Um, and uh, he, he he was messed up. He, he was in his 50s probably, but he was planning on getting married later that year. And when you've seen something like that, like, you can't complain about your situation, no matter how how, 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 how bad it is. Um, then, yeah, the... There, there were maybe four people who who were in there for for consistently for the duration I was in, and one of them was in awful state. He had schizophrenia and was hear, hearing voices, and he needed two people to be to to attend him at all times. Like he was having nine or ten panic attacks a day. Like it was absolutely awful. And then there were two people who I'm not sure their exact diagnosis, but they were ex heroin users, and they had it really really rough because well my family was coming in every single day. They might get one visitor a month or something like that. And having to go through that yourself without any family support would have just been absolutely awful. Um, they, 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 there was one lad, same age as me, uh, who was one of the heroin users. And then there was another lady, and she had it really, really rough as well because she had a young child who she, she wasn't able to see. You know, people just in really, really bad situations. How did you keep your own head together during all that because you know you're right when we compare against serious sexual abuse cases or you had the support of your family where other people didn't but you're still going through something major and instead of finishing third year of college and heading off traveling or hanging out with your mates you were hanging out with these guys and uh, yeah, yeah. you know for, for three months in a mental hospital I think you just focus on your family particularly I have a younger brother and sister and when you're going through something like, like that you just focus on them and uh, getting better for them, not just for yourself, um, and that was that was that, that was the main motivation when I was in there the first time. Um, was there talk therapy involved as well, or is it purely medically based? No, no, no. When when you're in hospital, it's it's purely medically based. Now they have some groups like CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a psychological technique to to handle with talk, with thoughts. But once you once you leave hospital, you can see a, a psychologist when you're uh, when you're out. Because like the the people who are, who are in hospital are really really sick, um, and so psychology is isn't uh, kind of a strong enough support uh, for for someone in that situation. Was there a moment where you felt yourself getting better? Where was there a turning point where you thought I, I'm coming back? I'm I'm going to be okay. Well, the, the first month I was in there, I did really really well. Um, I got I got a good bit better, and then I went out uh, back home after the first month for a visit. And I was watching TV again, and it felt as if the, the TV ripped the soul out of my body again. And the next two months were just absolutely brutal. Uh, but I got through them, I got out, and then I did all right for a year. I was still in a pretty bad state. And then I went back in, uh, and they put me on the most uh, powerful uh, medication. And, you know, that that, 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 that worked within, within a couple of weeks, and I was feeling a lot better. So at what point then were you inspired to 
do more for, for other people, to turn your experience into something that might be able to help others? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a natural thing that when you've been through something, you can find meaning in helping others who might, might have suffered that, the, 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 the same thing. So really, like, well, once, once, once I kind of figured out the idea that I wanted to educate people about the warning signs and, and what, 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 what to do uh, based on my own experience, um, I started this, I would say, a year and a bit ago. And I started off by going to a number of top psychiatrists, psychologists to formulate a solution. And broadly, the solution uh, we created was to educate secondary school students about the warning signs and to go to a specialized mental health doctor if 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 they feel feel felt they needed more help and secondly to to create those specialized mental health doctors so that anyone who is in a tough situation can go to one of these doctors and get treated so after that i got in contact with the government and i got support from three government ministers norma foley mary butler and austin smith uh, but then i kind of figured out that every school determines their own uh, sbg program so it would just be quicker for me to do it myself. And so then I got in contact with the group in UCD, uh, which they, they have a post, post-grad in, or a post-grad diploma in primary mental health care. So that, that they'll be kind of overseeing what, what, we're, what we're doing. So how would this have worked in reverse for you if, if, if what you're hoping to bring about was around when you were 18, 19? How, how would things have been different? Initially, it would have been nice just to to, to recognize that something might be wrong and then to, to, to maybe talk to someone about it uh, initially. And then when when it, it was clear that things were getting worse, uh, to have someone like a doctor that I could go to that can make a decision on whether I need a medication uh, or not. Um, so ideally, like, you know, it took maybe two, two years from when I started getting into to diagnosis, whereas what, what I'm hoping to do now is cut that time down to maybe... A few months and even the language you used around psychosis and what it is and the dopamine in the brain and the firing thoughts i never heard it described like that before, before so yeah but before i was in hospital i i'd never heard of says psychosis or or you know uh depersonalization or intrusive thoughts or anything anything like that and so really it's it's just to, to educate people not not that they remember the details of every single Ill- illness but just that if they're feeling bad, that it can be on the radar that they could actually be mentally ill. Does your experience hang over you like a shadow? Do you wait for it to come back or have you completely been able to, to move on? Um, well, see, I, I, I was sick for so long that I wasn't able to remember what it was like before I got sick. And so it's still, it's still I'm, I'm not sure if I'm 100% better, but I'm a lot better. Uh, and it's something, it's something that doesn't really ha- hang over me at all. Um, like the the way I see it, it, it was a tough situation, but I was tough enough to get through it. Um, and now you know what, what when you do survive something like that, life in general is is pretty easy. Like if if it's not something that's life or death, you know it 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 it, it just it doesn't really faze me that much. Is it something you feel you have to tell people? I mean, for example, I don't know how comparable it is. I had my appendix out. I don't bother <laughs> bringing that up on a, you yeah, know, a yeah. first date or telling anybody and everybody. Is it something you feel that needs to come into the conversation? Not 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 for my own sake, but if the story can help people, then like wh- whenever I'm talking to someone about the project, I I, w- I will include my story because that's just the the, the best way to kind of uh, get it across and get the point across of of the entire project. Well, look, it's just been in- incredible to to talk to you. I heard uh, PJ Gallagher 
talking on a, an interview recently on a podcast interview with Sheila Shoga and he was talking about how his family were part of a HSE project where people with schizophrenia and other conditions lived in his home. And he said, we, we never really hear those stories about the people who hear, yeah. hear voices. We hear of anxiety, we hear of depression and we should hear more of those stories. Yeah, so yeah. I am delighted that you chose to tell your story here on Thanks Alive and Kicking and we wish you all the very best Thanks with everything you do at Head Ed. That's Owen McMahon. Thanks. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, John Fardy, and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thank you to you for listening. I will tell you next week who is the lucky winner of that Fitbit Versa with thanks to Breast Cancer Ireland for their great pink run this year. Don't forget, registration opens tomorrow. I will see you next week.